The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Ooh, I'm Ben McKechn. <laughs> and I'm his otherworldly friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 117 of The Big Picture for the week beginning July 24. And coming up on today's show, our otherworldly show. Oscar winner Casey Affleck will haunt it up in a ghost story. Life and death collide in A Monster Calls and Dunkirk, one of 2017's most anticipated new releases. G'day, Mark, and g'day, Sam. Welcome to our otherworldly show. I'm just going to say this show sounds ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> Ghoulish of you. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrified already. I'm okay. spooked, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's in the cinemas this week, Ben? Uh, opening last Thursday, gentlemen, was a film called Paris Can Wait, which I'm sure you, both of you were like waiting with bated breath about the release I of can Paris wait. Can Wait, <laughs> which stars Diane Lane and Alec, Alec Baldwin and the French countryside. Uh, it's about the wife of a successful movie producer who takes a car trip from the south of France to Paris with one of her husband's associates. I think the most interesting thing about this film is it's directed by Eleanor Coppola, who is the wife of the very famous film director Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about this storyline that sounds like oddly like it could possibly be based on their life. And also their daughter, Sophia Coppola, has a film in cinemas at the moment called The Beguiled. It's a Coppola festival (laughs) at the moment at our cinemas. Cop that. Coming uh, next week, the, the sorry, this week to cinemas on Thursday, something totally different, War for the Planet of the Apes. Oh, yes. Apes, Battles, and Woody Harrelson <laughs> all together in the one film, finally. So War of the Planet of the Apes is opening on Thursday. We're a little bit pumped around here for that, and we'll be reviewing it on next week's show. What we're not pumped about is what's on TV this week. Oh, what was that? Well, you know, I was celebrating last week about how well the ABC can do. Yes, you were cheering them on. Yes, this week. They just completely flipped it around for me. On the ABC this week, The Lie Detective, Episode 1 starts July 26, 9.30pm. Okay. Okay. With the help of a polygraph, deception expert, uh, so Dan Ribikoff, brings real-life couples, exes, and hopeful singles together in the same room to find out the truth about their relationships. Uh, so this sounds like ABC's crack at a lot of those shows Channel 7 makes, like the seven-year switch and I that know. sort of thing. The, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like mm. Kyle Sanderland's basically putting a lie detector on, you know, young girls and asking them about their sex lives. It is a horror. Oh, he did that, didn't he? Yeah, Yeah. that was a horror. This is going to be a horror. 50 couples find out the truth about their relationships. The subline, will it tear them apart? Like, why would we do this? Uh, Mm, Let's just go and watch Australian Ninja Warrior. Indeed, we shall. Or, in fact, go over to Channel 10, where you'll be celebrating with Sam this week. Yes! The return of Australian Survivor. (laughs) You'll be celebrating before you even said it. (laughs) Yes. I love... You know what I love is that you get two American seasons of Survivor and now one Australian Survivor (laughs) every year. That's three seasons of Survivor. (laughs) Look how happy you are. Okay. (laughs) Well, listen, if you missed the big event, I was lying under my bed hoping it would go away. Come on. Last night. <laughs> Wash your mouth out. 7.30pm on Sunday it kicked off. But look, now it's on, okay? So it'll you'll just be wall-to-wall survivor for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to come. Jonathan LaPaglia returns as the host with 24 contestants competing for a whopping $500,000. Look, mm. I just don't know why we can't ever get the prize money up. Anyway, who knows? And the live finale will include all 24 contestants returning for the winner announcement in front of the audience. And I'll be there. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I will get there. Yep. I will. I'm wow. saying this now. I'm going to get to that live finale and I'll bring a report. If you do, oh. you can do a live report for the big picture. That will be 
In- interesting. Watch I would this love, space. I would love to hear that on the big picture. <laughs> All right. Now let's get to our true or false question. Yeah, before we get to Mark's What Your Kids Are Watching review this week, A Monster Calls, which stars the voice of Liam Neeson, here is a true or false uh, statement about Liam Neeson, who has voiced many famous characters in other animated movies. So... Did Liam Neeson provide the voice for Bad Cop in the Lego? No, tell me, sorry, which one he did not provide the voice for? Did, did not. not. Did right, not. Let me say that again. Did not. Did he did, he did not provide the voice <laughs> for Bad Cop in the Lego movie, Raccoon in the Nut Job, Father, Father Sean in The Simpsons, or Ben, the, the, the fantastically named character Ben in Pocahontas? So, did Liam Neeson not do the voice for Bad Cop, Lego movie, Raccoon, Nut Job, Father Sean, The Simpsons, or Ben in Pocahontas? So, he did three of those. He did three of those. I'm going to pick the one he didn't do. I reckon it's Ben because you made that up because it's your name. Uh, oh, what, so there'd be no character ever in a film called Ben just because I'm talking about it. What's Come on, what would I Pocahontas, man. I Come think on. it's going to be The Simpsons. What celebrities ever appeared in that? <laughs> Find out after this. Well, this week's choice for what your kids are watching uh, is what looks to become a beautifully crafted tool for teaching children the the importance of truth and belief. Our Monster Calls is based on the award-winning novel by Patrick Ness and scripted by the author himself. It's a dark tale about the worst days of a young boy's life and the hard lessons he learns in the face of broken families, bullies and the loss of a loved one. But Mark says it deserves a place on the shelf of every parent who hopes to teach their child an honest way to face death. You dream. I'm sorry you have to face this, but you have to be brave. Do you understand? What shall I destroy next? Break the windows! Break them yourself. It's okay that you're angry. I'm angry too. And if you need to break things, by God, you break them. Now, if you're not familiar with the story A Monster Calls, because it's actually been an award-winning book and around for a while, Lewis McDougall stars as Connor, this 13-year-old English boy who's struggling to care for his ailing mother. And sometime in the past, Connor's father has left to begin a new family in the United States. And our hero's mum, played by Felicity Jones, is now dying of cancer. So basically, you have a young boy battling a situation no child should be asked to bear. He's caring for his dying mother. He receives occasional assistance from his icy grandmother, who's played incredibly by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, and hmm? I know, yeah. she's just brilliant. Um, and his isolation at school, though, makes everything worse. There, The unwanted attention of bullies, and that brings him to a breaking point until one night at 12.07am as he's sitting up frustrated with his homework. There's this disturbing ruckus in the graveyard outside his window, and a monster emerges this huge terrifying tree crashes into his window and tells him I'm going to tell you three true stories and you are going to tell me one by the end of it and that sets up the whole plot which is just fantastic now now I understand the concept of what your kids are watching segment of our show and I understand that Connor's a kid but is this a kid's movie? <laughs> it's but actually... It, it looks very grim, okay, on, on on description. Should kids be watching this? Look, I think... Yes, okay, look, yeah. this is not for your primary school age kids. And here's, it, it kind of breaks the rule a bit in terms of fiction that you don't 
your, your main hero in a kid's film tends to be the age of the audience, okay? Whereas this one I think is probably for a slightly older audience, 15, 16, that sort of stuff. If you've got kids that are considerate, though, thoughtful, introspective, then they'll they'll value this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like the same vibe as Pan's Labyrinth. But not as intense? But it's not as dark as Pan's yeah, Labyrinth that was or dark. disturbing. Yeah, it, I'm not saying it's not disturbing. Okay, you've got some fairly... A, a kind of a nightmarish monster voiced by Liam Neeson. Um, and then you've got... But you also got balanced against these sort of fairy tales that, that Liam Neeson's character, the monster, tells, which sort of set up um, some fairly strong lessons that the boy has to learn. So what are those lessons? You mentioned something about the monster telling him true stories and, and the like, but what's the point of all that? What lessons is he teaching? Well, the really interesting thing I think is brilliant for kids to consider is basically the lies we tell ourselves. Okay, so the monster's stories are all about the way we tend to cope with things, whether it be by abandoning our faith in order to actually make our situation work um, or uh, telling lies to ourselves so that we can believe that what we did was justified um, or, you know, just self-deception or even giving way to temper and violence because it allows us to forget the pain we have inside. These are not... Um, simple lessons and they're not even welcome lessons but they're ones that kids should learn that we really are quite faulted people. Is there a lesson in this about death for kids? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because obviously since um, since Connor's mum is dying, mm. he actually has to come to grips with it. Now, I think it's fair in a, in a context like this to give away the end because I know we're not really talking to the kids who are the primary sp- audience. Spoiler alert. There's a spoiler alert here. So if you want to run away at this point or just stick fingers in your ears and go la, la, la for a moment, you'll only have to do it for 30 seconds. But I want, I want to let parents know what's coming up. So Connor's mum does die. So if you think that is going to be disturbing for your child, mm. you should be prepared for that. But the valuable thing that the um, that Connor has to come to terms with is the fact that he actually wants it in the end. Now, that's not like he's grim and doesn't like his mum or anything. It's, it's quite the opposite. Um, he's suffering so much because he loves her. He has to admit to himself that this is not a good thing, death, mm. and he really wishes it did come to an end um, and that it would go away. You know, that that death would be dealt with. Now, this is a valuable lesson for a kid to learn, but the only way he's ever going to learn it is if he looks at death not as some sort of fairy tale thing that people just glide through and they're looking down from us, you know, through candlelit background, but in fact actually deals with the sadness of death, the breaking of death, the pain of death. Now, a child who is well-armoured to understand that death is the enemy will be well able to accept the victory that Christ gives us over death. You can't see the victory of Christ without actually seeing the power of death itself, in fact, the terror of it. A Monster Call stars Liam Neeson, Sigourney Weaver, Tony Kebbell, Felicity Jones, and, of course, Lewis McDougall. It's rated PG for mild themes and violence, and uh, some sk- scenes may scare children. It opens July 27th. That's this coming Thursday. Now... We need a true or false answer. We do. So we just heard a bit about Liam Neeson in Monster Calls. He provided a voice in that. Um, But which of these animated characters did he not voice? Bad Cop, the Lego movie, Raccoon in The Nut Job, Father Sean, The Simpsons, or Ben from Pocahontas? The Nut Job was such a bad film. It was, yes. I'm going to basically say that he wouldn't have seen himself dead in that. So he wasn't Raccoon. Mm -hmm. Ben. Because Ben's made up. Ah, uh, gentlemen. Uh, no, Ben, no, you are right, Sam, or half yes. right. You are half right. He did not provide that provide that voice, so yes, he was seen he it. He was heard in the nut job. Oh, he gee. was bad cop in the Lego movie. He was Father Sean of the Simpsons. Billy Conley 
played the voice of Ben in Pocahontas. Oh. Ben is real. Okay. Yeah. Ben right. is real. Well, I stand corrected. Coming up on the big picture, a frighteningly fun flashback for soundtrack before Mark scares us silly about Oscar winner Casey Affleck in a ghost story. Welcome back. Welcome back to our 117th episode of The Big Picture. If you've missed any of the moments of The Big Picture from the past, oh, 116 shows, be sure to check out our podcast. Subscribe to it and find videos and other stuff at thebigpicturewebsite.com. There's a lot of Big Picture out there. Now, every week on the show, we have a soundtrack segment. And this week's soundtrack choice just reminds me of how awesome it is to work on a show like The Big Picture. So when we were putting together this week's show, and we noticed all this kind of ghostly stuff that was going on around us. Not in the studio. Not in the studio, but just over thinking about it. We thought, well, what else could we possibly play for soundtrack this week? But, well, who are you going to call? You better 
Uh, of course, Ghostbusters, the theme song from Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? 1984 is Ghostbusters. Ray Parker Jr.'s 1984 One Hit Wonder. Yes, what happened to Ray? I, I don't know. I don't, and, and, <laughs> no like, I, I, I presume he retired on I the strength of that one song. I bet he's still at Spring Fairs performing it. He, uh, I would be. If I'd, written, if I'd written Ghostbusters, I'd be living off that the rest of my life. Um, I didn't bother with that. Wasn't there like a remix or revamp version for the new oh, Ghostbusters that came out? Did you hear it? Fallout Boy and Missy Elliott, I think it was. Oh. Not worth your time. Well, no, nope. no. Instead, that's why we just brought you the original, the best, the one-hit wonder, Ghostbusters from Ray Parker Jr. Continuing our lineup this week of otherworldly releases is an art house extravagance that chronicles the life, I guess afterlife, of a typical ghost. A ghost story stars Best Actor Academy Award winner Casey Affleck in the role he was destined to play with a sheet over his head. With a sheet over his head. Apparently Let me so. Me. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> when a young musician dies and has to watch his world slowly disintegrate, Mark says we finally found out what an afterlife without God looks like. When I was little and we used to move all the time, I'd write these notes. And I would fold them up really small. And I would hide them. What did they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember. So that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. Ooh. Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara star as C and M, a couple who've built a life together living in a ramshackle rented home. And he's making his music and she, well, she's basically worrying about him because he's obsessed about his music. And you get the impression that C, this is the Casey Affleck character, is more attached to the house than his wife. And that actually proves to be the case because he dies tragically in a car accident. He's dis- I take it that's not a spoiler in a, ghost, a, in a, spoiler, ghost, in a ghost story. story. Okay. His disembodied spirit makes its way back to his house and watches his wife move away and others move in and then move out and then his house falls down and then something is built on top of the house and and, and then he wanders the corridors of the thing that was built on top of the house and and then eventually he kills himself even though that is slightly improbable because he is a ghost but that doesn't put an end to the story Uh, and all of this while Casey Affleck's wearing a sheet when when he's a ghost right now I get to let loose right okay but before before you do (laughs) and let me try to frame what I think is it sounds like a rant is going to come our way against this movie I think if I'm getting this right this doesn't sound anything like say Ghostbusters that we, we just alluded to before or even Ghost that classic Patrick Swayze Demi Moore Whoopi Goldberg movie a ghost story is not like those a ghost story is the definition of everything I hate about the art house film <laughs> industry okay now I'm just going to say oh boy oh boy let's Look, just sit I back don't- I don't mind art house films. I like art house films, okay? They're the R&D department of the film industry, okay? The research and development yeah, department. Yeah, basically great ideas come out of them and they often get stolen for blockbusters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But look, this piece by David Lowry is just appalling, okay? It is extremely pretentious. It is 92 minutes shot in the shape of a 4x3 Polaroid picture to begin with, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> like on screen, it looks like a Polaroid know, picture. It's like, come on, okay, with the rounded <laughs> corners and everything, okay? The ghost that, that, that Casey Affleck plays, well, it could have been Ben Affleck underneath that because it's a sheet thrown over him. The acting is not 
terribly required. The ghost just stands there the entire film looking at what's going on around him. Occasionally he gets frustrated and throws plates, but even then it's just like, you know, meandering, watching life slowly ebb away to the most depressing orchestral backing you've ever seen and saying, and, and then when, when if there is any dialogue from the ghosts, it's in subtitles and the ghost will look out the window and maybe see another ghost who's wearing a floral bedspread instead. Yeah, it's just a all in claptrap. Wow. Uh, um, do you think it's? Do you, um, <laughs> um, do you think it's taking itself um, seriously or too seriously or like is it? Ser- I take it it's serious. Like so, what is it seriously trying to say? Something? It is attempting to say serious stuff. Okay, but here's the thing, right? Um, the 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 film story is such that you're watching the ghost see everything pass away, and even I'm doing it justice because you feel like you're passing away while you're watching, um, and. Uh, everything just goes on and on and on till the bo- the ghost uh, makes a decision that he's going to throw himself off the high-rise building that's actually oh. been built on top of his beloved house after you've sat through 60 minutes of silence by that point. Um, and then he, um, he suddenly finds himself in the past and watches the whole thing happen all over again. You know, I don't want to... I'd like to say I don't want to give too much away, but there's just not that much to give away. <laughs> um, it is – I don't – look, I know this has got a big write-up from critics, okay? Um, I know that it is rated 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is a classic case of a critically acclaimed film which will make nothing at the box office. It's opening weekend in the US, got at 104000 uh, dollars, okay, for the weekend nationally. It will be lucky if it pays its marketing bill based on that alone. Uh, it is one of those cases where it's pretentious and loaded down basically because it has no knowledge of a very serious topic uh, and anything serious to say about it. Well, look, you're not loving this film. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm gathering so far. So you're gathering so correctly, Sam. Slight little summary. But what do you think is the greatest tragedy Look, in this film. The greatest tragedy in this film is that they didn't realise that this debate was done about 2,000 years ago. Okay, uh, in fact, more so, about three. Uh, in the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible, this whole idea is actually put forward, that if you were to look at a world and life itself without God, what would it be like? And you would discover that all things go on and on in a circular way and pass away. Now, the film presents itself as if somehow it's it's got some real sort of wisdom to offer. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not that everything passes away and it's pointless and meaningless, but if you look at the world without God, it is meaningless. Mm-hmm. If you, it's like basically wearing ski boots around and not realising that they apply to skis and snow. You know, It's like walking into the middle of a movie with no idea of what the story is really all about. Uh, this is what life is like without God. And all you see with a ghost story is the tragedy without any of the triumph of realising that death is not pointless or circular if, in fact, it's faced with God. Wow. If in any way, shape or form you are actually interested now in going to see a ghost story, <laughs> it stars Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. It's rated M for occasional coarse language and mature themes. It opened actually last week. But if Mark's right, you better be quick if you want to see it because it might be escaping cinemas soon. Spiriting away, if mm. you will. <laughs> Coming up on The Big Picture, what will the Dark Knight director do with World War Two? Our review of Dunkirk is about to land, as well as a very special guest. Welcome back to the show. 
In just a few moments, the big picture will be looking at director Christopher Nolan's attempts to resurrect the story of Dunkirk, a stirring tale about perseverance and service in the face of almost certain death. This is often the lot of every man and woman who serve in life, armed services during wartime, facing the prospect of dying even as they seek to save others. So this week we're going to uh, uh, talk to a soldier who has made that choice, uh, notionally at least, to put his life on the line for the sake of others. Colonel Matt Rogerson has been an Australian soldier for the better part of three decades. He served both in tactical communications and as a member of Australia's Special Forces, the SAS. He's also served in the Golan Heights between Israel and Lebanon as a UN military observer and has also put in stints in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Colonel Rogerson, welcome to the show. Yeah, hey, thanks very much. Um, yeah, call me, uh, call me Matt. <laughs> it's very nice. Of you. Thank you <laughs> thanks, very much. Matt. I've got to say, um, there's a, I've got a little bit of a military background, which I won't bring up right now, but the truth is to talk to a full colonel is making me sit at attention. So thanks very much for being on the show. No worries. Well, listen, you've got a pretty distinguished service. It's clear uh, it's not all about fighting, though. Is this fair to say that modern defence forces serve a much broader role than, say, they did during the idea of, uh, during the time of Dunkirk? Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. I think what you see in the movie is part of the depiction of of what total war looks like. And that's, you know, what makes, I guess, the movie so um, compelling in in one way. This is a mobilisation of an entire sort of country towards its own defence. The ADF still has that uh, essential task of defending Australia and its national interests, but happily, uh, you know, we're not we're not in that global war situation. Um, and you'll see the ADF people like me in uniform in much sort of broader roles, such as you know we saw recently with that cyclone um, relief in North Queensland or assisting Pacific neighbours or things like that. But um, ultimately, it is all also um, worthwhile remembering that you know we've got almost um, a thousand. Um, soldiers, sailors and airmen overseas right now fighting um, mainly in the Middle East um, or helping um, in, the, in the fight against terror. So, so it's still, a, you know, we certainly retain that role, yeah. Matt, those that served in World War II had to very much consider that doing, doing so might cost them their lives. Is that still a consideration that members of the ADF must make today? Absolutely. Um, I guess this is... Um, this, what, this is what sets the profession of arms apart from most other occupations. Uh, when I joined up, um, it was only after a sober consideration of, um, of what it would potentially mean, um, not just uh, the, the fact that I might you know, potentially be putting my own life at risk, but also uh, that I would be um, called upon um, if needed to, um, to kill other people. And that's a very sobering um, consideration, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ma- um, uh, Matt, before uh, Mark uh, does a follow-up question to, to that, to dive into the, the, that decision that you personally made, a, a, a quick question for you. How do you feel about the depiction of soldiers in movies? So we've got this big epic World War II film Dunkirk coming to cinemas, but they've had a whole history of Australian and American war movies in particular. How do you feel, though, in general about the depiction of um, armed forces on screen? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Rangers, I mean, it's like anyone, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a um, you know, a copper, and you're watching some sort of police procedural. You, you know, you can always pick um, problems with the detail. But I think in the main, um, some you know, some of the big movies do a pretty good job. If you look at something like, you know, Saving Private Ryan, for example, the, um, that really um, felt felt real to me. Who, you know, and I've I've been under um, 
not, you know, I haven't invaded Normandy, but I've certainly been under fire. And so you can sort of get a sense of, yeah, that's actually really true to form. And, and I think um, this movie is another great example of where, where you do, it brings home some of the, um, the sort of the complete sensory overload and the, um, you know, some of the real horrors of what, um, what some of our soldiers have to, uh, have to face. Well, Matt, as you say, you've been in very, very difficult circumstances. I, I don't doubt there are people who are listening to the show who might be able to reflect some of those, but for the most of us, it's a decision that would be mind-boggling. How does being a Christian affect your approach to a situation like that? How does it affect your service in general? Yeah, it's a great question again. Um, I think, just stepping it back one, I mean, the Defence Force takes uh, the sort of the ethical um, and sort of moral demands on its soldiers really seriously. And, you know, that's why you have, um, for example, chaplains in the Defence Force, you know, and there's um, a lot of uh, training and preparation uh, that soldiers undertake before combat. And then also there's there's a lot of work that happens after it. Um, but I think, personally now speaking, um, that as a Christian, um, it is uh, enormously beneficial on a really practical level um, being uh, a person of faith within the within the defence force, um, you know, I've always been a Christian because I think it works. There's a real sort of pragmatism about my faith, and I think um, it's a big question about reconciling, you know, uh, Christian uh, values, I guess, and some of the work in the defence force. But the short answer is that I've found, um, you know, what I guess what my faith gives is a framework for dealing with some of the the real um, difficulties or complexities um, of 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 my job. Um, yeah, it's not like that. Those all those problems disappear, but it means that I've got a sort of a rock solid set of values and worldview that really helped me through. So it's that framework. But I think finally, and sort of perhaps more importantly, it's uh, it gives us all um, a, you know a great personal assurance and comfort that you you know I'm in some foxhole. I I, I know ultimately that um, I'm in um, God's care and nothing happens without His will. And so that's a that's when you think about it for a minute, that's remarkable that that's something that's on offer to all, all of us as uh, Christians. Matt, that's fantastic. And thanks very much for being part of the show. No worries. Great. Thanks. Thanks again. Few directors working today have a household name, but even people who would not even claim to be a film buff know Christopher Nolan's name and love his work from a memento to the Dark Knight trilogy and even Inception. Nolan's latest film is entirely different to anything he has done before. Dunkirk is his epic reenactment of a famous World War II battle told in three parts, land, sea and air. They need to send more ships. Every hour the enemy pushes closer. They've activated the civilian boats. Civilians? We need destroyers. Where are we going? Dunkirk! I'm not going back. We or they will die. You're weekend sailors, not the bloody navy. Should be at home. Ben and Mark were at the Sydney premiere of Dunkirk and filed this report from the front line. Well, here we are, just after seeing the premiere of Dunkirk. And what a packed cinema to begin with. People were lining up for ages to get into this one. How did you feel about it? Man, I'm still a bit shell-shocked. What about you? Oh, absolutely. Like, they really... Christopher Nolan really has worked hard to produce the audio effect of being in a bombardment. I, I think I'm going to remember the soundtrack of that for years to come. 
I totally agree. It's like being in the first 25 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, but for an hour and three quarters, which is how long uh, Dunkirk... I'm, I'm with you. I'm still trying to like gather my thoughts because it was more of an experience for me than a traditional war movie. Do um, you think I'm right? Yeah, absolutely. There's not what you would call uh, a straightforward story. So if you go along and you see this and you're expecting your normal arc with your one hero and you're following them through or maybe a couple of extra characters, you're not going to see that. It's much more of a mosaic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so Christopher Nolan's divided this into three parts, uh, land, sea and air, and he's focusing on a very famous evacuation of British troops in 1940. But but you're right, Mark. It's uh, Christopher Nolan who wrote this as well. Uh, I think hasn't set out to do what you might have expected, which is, is it an anti-war movie? No. Is it a pro-war movie? No. It's more of like an imagining of what it would be like under a bombardment as you are attempting and, and as soldiers want to be rescued and like find some sort of salvation in, in what looks like certain death almost. You as the audience member are effectively trapped with these soldiers in that predicament. And there are very few characters that you'll actually be able to go, yes, I like that guy and I want to be like that guy. There are many, many characters who are finding the edge of desperation as they try and save their own lives in what seems like a completely unwinnable situation. Without the movie turning upon these characters and suggesting they're cowardly, I mean, the the term coward comes up at a bunch of different occasions, but what's brave and what's cowardly, it gets all a bit confused, I think, in Dunkirk in a a deliberate way to, to make you think as an audience, member what would you do if you were confronted with a situation like this and and particularly from a director who's become very well known for epic but um kind of fantastic films like sci-fi fan- fantasy as it fantastic as in fantasy it's quite amazing what christopher nolan's done here he's turned fact into fiction sure he's like he's he's imagined what would have happened at dunkirk but i think he's very help helpfully tried to place people in a war zone to shock you as an audience member to think what would you do in such a like such a mind-blowing circumstance and of course there are the big surprises so there's the soldiers who turn out to be really struggling to be um, sacrificial or serving even and then there are the the civilians who are called into the fight who do amazing things and even those who who seem like they can do next to nothing do amazing things in the end so I was pretty impressed what did you like the most about the film what have we mentioned now two or three times already that we really like the the soundtrack but the sound design of this film is so overpowering sometimes I just wanted to get away from it but I appreciate it as, a, as an experience of cinema it's almost unlike anything I've seen for, for some time I like that I liked actually the fact that the film didn't focus on one character didn't set anyone up to be the hero we just followed a bunch of different guys at different times trying to get out of this dire circumstance I really enjoyed that and a lot of the casting was great some familiar faces that we see in Christopher Nolan films like Tom Hardy and Killian Murphy but again, they're not traditional heroes that you often get, particularly in war movies as well. I, I appreciated that. What about I, you? Well, I particularly liked uh, seeing sort of circumstances where in which people who had behaved quite selfishly still had moments to redeem themselves. So it wasn't clear black and white characters, but it was lots of characters who had moments of black and then replaced them with moments of white and, and did the best they could under that circumstance. And I thought that that was a much more realistic view of humans. Hey, if we were talking about realistic views of spiritual stuff what would you say you took from it as dunkirk itself recognizes that sometimes what something that can seem like a um a a disaster a loss a failure 
actually isn't as such and there can be um, actual victory won out of that which is a, like an amazing portrait of uh, of the gospel that uh, whenever someone talks about Jesus and people can look at that as a significant failure what he did up on the cross but amazingly victory comes through that now Dunkirk isn't preaching that message but what it does do Mark is the final note of the film ends on a very famous speech that Winston Churchill gave um, after this evacuation took place so amazingly we come out of Dunkirk being kind of shell-shocked by this war experience but I was left on a note that the film leaves me on thinking about where can hope and rescue and salvation self-sacrificially come from and Dunkirk itself leaves me on the note of Jesus as I still try to gather my thoughts. (laughs) Well let's take our shell-shocked thoughts back to the studio. That's a solid report guys. Thank you very much. Well done. Coming up on the big picture, what the Bible has to say about ghosts. I'm looking forward to finding that out before Mark brings the fun fear factor with his top five ghost adventures. Welcome back to the show. Well, we're almost at the end of our otherworldly show, but stick around because Mark will soon spook us silly with his top five ghostly adventures. All this talk of the supernatural scares and the afterlife led us to set an obvious but tough challenge for social commentator Greg Clark. We asked the Bible Society CEO to bring us up to speed with what the Bible has to say about ghosts. Here's a Bible passage from Mark chapter 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Well, do Christians believe in ghosts? Like the popular Facebook relationship status update, it's complicated. The Bible certainly teaches that beings other than human beings exist. Angels, demons, good and evil spirits. Human beings aren't the only beings. But ghosts, ghosts are different. A ghost is usually defined as the part of a being that exists when the body doesn't. They are the bit that's living after the body is dead and they appear to those of us who are still alive in the body. Well, does the Bible teach that disembodied beings like this actually exist? To answer, we should first look at the only two ghost stories you'll find in the Bible. The first is the story of the dead prophet Samuel, who appeared to King Saul, as recorded in 1 Samuel 28. Here, there's a figure that looks like Samuel, and he delivers a message to the king. You'll be judged by God, and you're going to lose your battles. The ghost turns up, but it was not something Saul should have been involved in. The second story is in the New Testament, when Jesus is on a mountain with his followers, and he glows white, an event that's often called the Transfiguration. Two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, appear and talk with Jesus. They were the great hopes of Israel in the past, these prophets who promised that history would change and humanity would be saved from its wretched condition. Their ghost-like appearance confirms that Jesus is the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. So, yes, there are ghosts, after all, with God anything is possible. The ancient Jewish law, as we find in the Old Testament of the Bible, tells us distinctly that we shouldn't go looking for people who have deceased. The realm of the dead is God's territory, not ours, but they do exist. The ultimate ghost in the Bible is actually the Holy Ghost, another name used to describe the Spirit of God. This Spirit is really very personal. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God reacts to us, speaks to us, dwells with us, It's a very active ghost. But ghosts haunting a house? No. Ghosts as people who are God's messengers? Maybe. Going to a seance and seeking the spirits of the dead? Definitely not. The Bible definitely teaches that there is more to reality than what we can sense or in fact what we can reason out with our minds. On this, atheistic materialists and Christians actually agree. There's a lot more to discover. 
But ghosts aren't where the action is for Christians. That's found in the idea of resurrected bodies. The future for those who believe in Jesus is resurrection to eternal life, a life enjoyed in all its fullness, body, mind and spirit. Human beings are naturally inclined to believe that death is not the end of us. So we're looking for signs of the survival of the self. Ghost sightings are part of that impulse, I guess. But the resurrection of Jesus, that's the surest sign that we're not headed for mere dust and ashes, nor for an ectoplasmic future, but a full-bodied, paradise-enjoying one. The promise of resurrection leaves the world of ghosts for dead. And of course, eternitynews.com.au is a great supporter of the big picture, and we encourage you to whip on over to their website and see some of the great things there. You'll see other columns by Greg Clark, including seven really weird things that Christians believe and how you won't believe. Number six. Number six. Number six. You is won't the believe one. it. That's clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> it's great clickbait, though. Mm, it is. <laughs> Plus, latest eternity videos includes Ben's shocking confession about Dunkirk. One word again. Shocking. Yep. Yeah. Okay, go check it out. Attorneynews.com.au. Well, we've talked childhood frights with the monster calls, art house ghosts, and uh, Mark's hatred of a ghost story, <laughs> and resurrected memories with Dunkirk. I'm now ready for you guys to hit me with your top five ghostly adventures. Yeah, let me begin by giving you a little otherworldly advice. Please Uh, do. Come here not seeking tales of terrifying ghouls or soul-searing spirits. If you want that, you can just Google horror movie on your browser. Now, I'm not a big fan of horror films because most of them I see from behind my couch. (laughs) Uh, But it does sort of warp your view of what a film is actually like. But I like a good hero. So I thought I'd search out a series of films where the ghosts are the heroes. Okay, the key character of it all. And so no Ghostbusters, more Ghost, you know, with Patrick Swayze, but not that because that's just awful. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Five. Frighteners from 1996. That's a Peter Jackson film, isn't it? It is indeed. You said it. The Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. I was going to lead up to it, but yes, this is a film. Just stole the punchline. A little known Peter Jackson film is, in fact, actually my favourite otherworldly comedy. There's a few sort of things that fit inside this demographic. You've got, you know, Death Becomes Her or Sleepy Hollow. There's Mm. sort of like somewhere along the line of both creepy and laughable. Um, And Frighteners is right in there. After a tragic car accident that kills his wife, there's this architect, Frank Bannister. He discovers he can communicate with the dead. So what does he do if he can communicate with the dead? Starts using them as con men, you know, the ghosts, so they mm. can actually sort of rip off people oh, of by course. exercising right. the house. Yes. However, when a demonic spirit appears, he may be the only one who's actually capable of stopping this creature from the uh, other side of the grave from killing both the living and the dead. It stars Michael J. Fox. Uh, back to the Future's yeah, Michael J. Exactly. Fox. Exactly, and in one of his great performances too. Like, again, just a little-known comedy that Michael J. Fox was in. Brilliant fun, as you say, directed by Peter Jackson. Um, and only the what I really love about it is that it makes it really clear that only the living have a chance to make a real difference in our life. Okay? Now, this is my favourite romance to do with ghosts. Has anyone here seen The Ghost of Mrs. Muir? No. No. Oh, guys. That's a, that's a movie right from like the 50s or 60s. Yeah, you are right? both young married men. And so I, as the elderly gentleman in the room, will set you up and say, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to sit down on a Saturday afternoon, curl up in winter oh. with a blanket 
and okay. and enjoy a film with your wife. Okay, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. This is a brilliant thing. Um, it was also turned into a TV series, but actually it was originally a film in 1947, if you can get your hands onto it. Um, it starred Hope Lang as Carolyn Muir. She was this young widow and writer who had rented Gold Cottage near this sort of village called Schooner Bay. And there she was with her two children. It turns out the cottage was haunted by its former owner, Daniel Gregg, a 19th century sea captain. Uh, and he was basically there to frighten her but in the end they strike up a relationship right that that old classic tale of a ghost ghost romance what kind of genre is ghost romance (laughs) like who's browsing the shelves or you know online thinking I really want to see a good ghost romance this weekend that's what I'm saying it's so rare it's worth seeking out (laughs) Okay, and I got to say, um, this sort of—I mean, this is a, this is the ultimate unrequited love story because one of them is dead. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit of a chance, barrier. The chances, yeah, fewer things would be more harder to surmount. Clearly, physics is going to stop things happening. But look, I love this story because the captain is actually incredibly patient. You see, so uh, and in fact, if you like really loving, there's another love interest that moves into um, the young widow's life, um, and he steps aside because he realizes the best thing he can do is actually let her have a real romance. If you with like the ghost? No, no, no. With the he steps aside. Oh, I to see. Let yes, the, yes, I the, see. The, the, I'm the, trying to keep up. The man who who steps into the young widow's life work. Anyway, um, look, it falls over. Patience is rewarded. It's, it's one of those love movies where. Um, where you know um, death actually plays a positive role in the end, and it just goes so. Just because you're dead, it doesn't mean you can't be a gentleman about it. Three. <laughs> okay, um, number three. Okay, now this is a little bit of a stretch. Okay, from 2004, the key character is not dead, but everyone thinks he is. Okay, he is, of course, the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, I couldn't stand this movie. <laughs> oh. Oh, thanks for bringing this up. Well, well, I suppose you how didn't... you feel about a ghost story is did how you... I feel about the Phantom of the Opera. Please did, continue. Did you not like the musical? No. Nope. Oh gosh. Well, please okay. keep going. Well, please for audience members uh. who have an appreciation of culture, um, just let, let me address you personally at this point and say if you haven't seen the Phantom of the Opera as it was remade in two thousand and four, which is pretty much a shot by shot of the musical, then I'd encourage you to go and do it. Based on Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1986 musical, the same name. This one starred Gerard Butler in the title role and Emmy uh, Rossum as Christine Day and directed by Joel Schumacher, of all people, okay, who's actually better known for his sort of action films. Yeah. So there you go. A fan of the opera hides beneath a 19th century Paris opera house and schemes to get closer to the vocalist Christine. Um, actually, it's a really kind of tragically beautiful tale because the bad guy... Um, is more like a, an anti-hero. You know, he's actually, on the one hand, um, teaching Christine how to sing and bringing out in her a beautiful voice that she's never had before. Um, he can't really emerge because he's terribly scarred. And in the end, he too disappears in order to make room for a real romance for the heroine of the piece. I Look, wish that film disappeared. It's incredible music. Thanks very much. Spare a thought for the problem of ghosts, will you? Uh-huh. Two. <laughs> Okay, fine. Right. I cannot put this list on without saying 1999's The Sixth Sense. No, you could not. But immediately I have a problem. You do. Okay, because I just want to say that this is a list about ghost films where ghosts are the hero. But I can't give away anything about The Sixth Sense except to say... You just did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you really, you really tried. No. You've already spoiled one storyline of a film in today's show. Let's just do it again. Listen, 
I have a I have a policy about uh, spoilers. Okay, if you to haven't them, to give them away, if you haven't seen a film by ten years after it comes out that everybody's been talking about, then you risk it yourself. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Blame other people. Yeah. If you look, you really should go see The Sixth Sense. Actually, for all those people who know her, it even stands up to a second watch. M Night Shyamalan and Ding Dongs, um, <laughs> greatest work I expect. Joel, Haley Joel Osment as Cole and Bruce Willis as Doctor Malcolm Crow. Uh, Cole is this disturbed young boy who's frightened by the fact that he can see dead people, and Doctor Cow is the uh, uh, the psychologist who's actually going to help him through that. Uh, look, here's the thing. Without trying to give away too much more, self-knowledge is the most important thing. If you don't understand yourself, how are you ever going to understand others? And that's what this film brings out in spades. One. Here we go with my favourite ghost film of all time. Okay. Here it is. 2009's... Well, actually, it doesn't really have to be 2009, but the story... A Christmas Carol. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Now, Christmas Carol is a story about a visit from three ghosts that bring about a life change in a lifeless man. Charles Dickens' classic novel about a Victorian-era miser taken, you know, you know Scrooge, basically. He, he's a, a proverb. Uh, he take, he's taken on a journey of self-redemption, courtesy of these three Christmas apparitions, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And basically... They, they put him through memories of blessings and dire warnings of the future and where his scheming life will take him. And one of my favourite versions, actually, is the Muppet version. Okay? <laughs> the Muppet Christmas Carol is an institution at our house. And just a bit of a shout-out to Robin Powell, who put our family onto this. She did it with her family for years, and now we're doing it with ours. Every Christmas, we sit down and watch the Muppet Christmas Carol together. It is a great, fun way of kids actually enjoying a Muppet film, but at the same time getting a solid message that you really need to look at where your life is taking you and where you're going to go. Now, of course, Jim Carrey and Robert Zemeckis did a version in 2009, which is just as much fun, so you can watch that too. But if we learn that the chief opportunity Christmas presents is a chance to repent, then, yep, we've done well. What if you were given a second chance to get your life right? This holiday season... The ghosts of Christmas past, present, <laughs> and future. Get away! Get away! Will give one man that chance. <laughs> Good pick. Thank Everyone you. I'm glad I wasn't a fan of the opera. No, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying to get past that. Yeah, uh, everybody has their a ghost story to contend with. That is all the time we have for on the show this week. But next week on The Big Picture, rom-com The Big Sick dares to c- tackle racism. There's also going to be food and funny blokes. You're going to be dining with me and Mark and Sam. No, not really. It's a new movie called The Trip to Spain. Plus, War for the Planet of the Apes. Bring on the monkey and all of us. And I will be monkeying around as Ben McKechnie next week. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 